Hello and welcome to Sync Music Matters, a podcast that explores the beautiful relationship between music and the moving image. My name's Jim Hostrip and I'm your host on this journey, as each week I chew the fat with industry professionals who, on a daily basis, work with music for visuals. Now you might immediately assume that I'm talking about composers, but I'm also talking about editors, music supervisors, directors and anyone else who's involved with the synchronous process of pairing audio and visuals. In this episode, I'm talking to Universal Production Music's senior producer, Andrew Stannard. So, what can you expect from today's chit-chat? Well, Andrew and I reveal our shared love for 80s TV themes, and Andrew even posits a theory about why strong melodic hooks were such a staple back then. Uh, If you've listened to any other episodes of Sync Music Matters, you will know that I harbour a deep, deep love for obscure TV, film and music-related trivia. And Andrew brings more music trivia gold to the table than you can shake a stick at. Uh, He blows my mind with a revelation about an 80s game show theme, which it turns out was written by one of Hollywood's biggest composers. He also brings my world crashing down when he informs me that one of my favourite TV themes was, in fact, plagiarised. And I've not felt such disappointment since the realisation that Santa Claus and my dad had the same handwriting. Andrew is obviously a mine of information about production music generally. Uh, We chat about the golden age of the 70s, how the production music landscape has changed over time. And we also try to break down what makes a great production music track, from using unique sonic textures to splicing unexpected genres. He also has some very sound advice for anyone who would like to get into production music. As ever, links to all the music discussed can be found in the show notes, and I highly recommend checking them out. Uh, You can find show notes on your preferred podcast platform or on my website, larpmusic.com forward slash sync music matters podcast. And sync music matters podcast is hyphenated. Andrew Stannard is a senior producer for Universal Production Music. He's worked in production music for over 20 years, starting off as a music supervisor for Zomba, moving into sales for BMG, before joining the production music department at Universal. He's produced countless albums in all manner of genres and has worked with seasoned media composers as well as beatmakers, electronic producers and specialist composers. As well as producing new music for Universal, Andrew looks after an archive of old recordings on the Bruton and Chapel labels. He has supplied samples to artists like Danger Mouse and Disclosure and through this had a hand in the worldwide number one hit record Crazy by Niles Barkley. Andrew Stannard, thanks for joining me. Lovely to talk to you, yeah, lovely to see you too. Um, I am actually going to just just reference the fact that sometimes in life we have these awkward situations whereby um, people might be um, getting our name wrong. Um, And uh, Andrew revealed to me earlier today that actually for, and I've known you for what, six or seven years? Um, I've been getting his name wrong um, for six or seven years. In my defence, though, it's I've always known how it's spelled. I think it's a northernism. I think we northerners don't like extraneous consonants. So I, instead of saying Stannard, I've said Stannard. Um, so yes, Andrew Stannard. Thanks yeah, for joining me. But I think it's one of those things where um, when it's gone so far, it's just too 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 yeah. old now. You can't you can't go back now. So like you know, you just leave it. Don't worry about it. But um, well, th- this is it. It's that awkwardness where had we not done this podcast today then that there might not have been the context for you correcting me so it would have gone on for years and years so not only is podcasting hopefully sort of insightful and informative but it also provides a context for correcting people when they've been saying your name wrong no worries um, no that's fine that's fine 
Brilliant. Yeah. So, well, thanks very much for joining me. I'm going to start with the the first question that I start with every guest, which is if we were to sort of rewind to when you were sort of any time between sort of five or 10 years old and you sort of got asked that kind of typical question of, hey, what would you like to be when you grow up? What would you have responded? <laughs> I didn't know that question was coming, actually. It's good. Um, so it's quite interesting, actually, because I don't think well, I certainly didn't know about production music. Um, so I had no idea about this whole world that I work in at the moment. Um, so age five, I knew I wanted to be involved in music. The thing is, I was quite unusual. I was drawn to music. So a lot of kids, they get told to play the piano. You must go and do your practice. You must, you know, try and learn an instrument. And I was just drawn to it. I had this strange fascination with sound. Um, I get told stories about when I was a baby, my granddad would put classical music on and I'd sit upright and be like, what's this? What's going on? Um, so, and then we had this piano and I just went to the piano and basically found chords and sounds and, 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 and really uh, played by ear right from the start. Um, but what did I want to be? I wanted to be a policeman. I mean, I wanted to catch oh, really? robbers and like, yeah, that was exciting. I wanted to be out there doing what I've seen on television. So yeah, that was like the thing that I wanted to do. Uh, uh, but then I think all through my life, I've always known that music was a thing that I was drawn to. How the hell that would turn up to be what I do now, I don't know. But like, uh, so let's say policeman. <laughs> Sorry. Um, if that's the answer you're looking for was it was policeman was that and it was there any because um uh, i interviewed todd baker a few weeks ago and um it came about that he wanted to be a fighter pilot off the back of watching top gun was there a particular sort of tv show that you'd seen that made you want to be a policeman i mean there's things like tj hooker um i don't know like any cop shows like the bill um anything yes. with cars racing around catching robbers i mean it looked really exciting yeah um, I mean, so yeah i mean that i was really drawn to that but yeah thank god i didn't go down that road though i don't think yeah. i would have been a very good cop but um weirdly it was something i entertained at some point as well even actually probably nearing sort of eight level time where i sort of thought i didn't know what i wanted to do and i kind of thought about police and then i kind of decided that i did wouldn't actually be able to deal with the things that police have to see on a day-to-day basis, I don't think I would be able to see that and cope mentally. Yeah. So I sort of. Well, pers- personally, I think I could cope with the discipline, having to say like uh, yes sir, no sir, and whatever to your boss and your seniors. Uh, I I couldn't and the hours. I can't get up that time of the day. That's terrible. <laughs> no way. I can't do that. So yeah, yeah. Um, thankfully steered away from that. Yeah, and going back to what you mentioned about the um, piano, can you remember how old you were when you started? And was there a particular kind of seminal moment where you know piano seemed like a logical thing to do okay so my musical thing is basically it's really strange um first of all i started um my my uh, nan used to have these brass um, sort of ornaments i used to hit the brass ornaments because they had a so certain kind of ring so i was like drawn to sound in a weird way and that was obviously there's vibrations there's sound going on and it was like really exciting my ears um that's before the piano then the piano we had a piano uh which my mum got because she was bored and wanted to practice to play some piano um and then she would play something i'd be like play it again mum play it again and then i would go to the piano and so it's age probably four three and a half four and i'd be just what it was is just hit notes think oh that's a nice sound hit two notes oh that's interesting what happened oh those and then i was hearing i mean now i look back and i was hearing fourths and fifths and those um pulses you get between different um intervals and like how that sounds you go to you know a seventh and you're like oh that's like a so i was kind of drawn 
to to the, the sensation in my ears of what sound was doing. And then um and then I realized, you know, you can play tunes as well and like that was that was fun. Um and really my whole musical background's been playing by ear i have had to force myself to, to read music and that happened really late on um i tend to just um play tv themes i was really into tv themes quite weird as a child um it's quite nice where i've ended up though how that was when i was back in the you know as a kid um so you know i'd, I'd hear something off the telly and i'd work out how to play it and then my mates would be like, that's really cool. And then you, that's the first time in my life I knew there was a payoff for music. So you could play. Um, so I'm, I'm a person of the 80s. I'm revealing my age here. But like, um, so it's like Kids from Fame theme. I played that. Um, and all my mates were like, wow, I can't, I, you know, do it again, do it again. And then I ended up playing for an assembly we had at school, in my primary school. And everybody walked in. I had to play Kids from Fame theme. And it was like, I still remember. I was like, and everyone was like, that was so cool. I was like, okay, that, this music thing's pretty good. Because you get, I mean, that's, I, I, I mentioned that because it was just like a, a nice thing. But um, Yeah, sure. I think as well at that age to be able to do something that people kind of marvel at is probably maybe the first time you sort of go, oh, wow. It can, you just, the realisation that actually not everyone can do that. I think also because it wasn't classical music. Everyone else mm. was like, here's my Mozart piece. And then I was playing Kids from Fame, Fame which had like a pretty groovy bass line. It's quite kind of a disco kind of funk thing. And, um, and it was like, oh, you're playing music, which is like pop music. And, you know, that, that was where I, I, I really liked classical music, but I knew there was more cachet to be doing the other stuff. But so, yeah, so, but, so I was aged about, about four when I started off. Wow. Well, and as well, it's worth mentioning that actually theme tunes in the 80s were amazing they're like some of the best tv theme tunes ever written i think came out of the 80s both kids music but also you sort of think like stuff like quantum leap the a-team night rider it was back in a day where you had a real theme that set the scene and sort of which i don't know i kind of feel has been maybe lost a little bit today certainly in sort of film and television there's not you know the theme isn't quite so cool as it used to be so yeah there's a story behind that i was reading this article that daniel pemberton wrote actually and it's all about the fact that so the you know the story is basically the theme tune was like come in from the kitchen you're making your tea mum um you know uh, um the you know, soap opera starting come in and it would draw you in so you knew, and it was like, there was a lot of time they needed for people to stop what they were doing and come to the television. So it was like, um, it, but now, because, you know, video on demand and it's just instant, you don't, you don't need to have that long period to try and get people to stop what they're doing and, and go to the television and, and, and be drawn to it. Um, so, yeah, this, this ridiculous thing now, you have 20 seconds. You know, it was like a minute and a half, two minutes sometimes. Um, um, and have you ever heard the Going for Gold theme tune? Well, there's a classic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who wrote that? Hans I can't Zimmer. Oh, was it? Yeah, there's a little bit of trivia. So we, I know the, I'm, I'm jumping oh. into early pit. Like, so Hans Zimmer famously wrote the Going for Gold theme tune when he was just looking for amazing. cash. That is amazing. That is the best bit of trivia I've ever heard. I did I not know that, that. I thought that's why you mentioned it. I thought that's the reason no. why you brought it up. But, um. oh. But no, because there's actually an extended version. So there's the TV theme tune, but then there's also sort of like this really long version where they sort of like go off on one, sort of like talking. But it makes total sense that it's Hans Zimmer that did it because it's an incredible piece of music. Wow. And he was he was quite prevalent in the 80s, wasn't he? He was doing a lot of sort of 80s, um, 
What was the band that he was in in the eighties? Well, he did something with Buggles. I remember he was like, yes, with, yeah, Buggles, a video yeah. killed yeah. a radio star. And um, but back in the day, when that was like a, a, a way to get your cash, and it still is now, and you can go from that into a different career. But um, yeah, well, I, I'm, yeah, I'm just waiting for the day that you know that sort of like heavy themes come back because um, yeah, I'm a sucker for a good melody. I, I was talking about this, and like I. I really you know long for the days of big theme tunes coming out and they do do that now with netflix but you can skip um and it's true now that because we're binge watching so i remember the wire and it's a great song at this front you know it's got this you know the, the theme tune's great but you're binging it so you, you do want to skip it because you don't want to because so it's not the same tv experience it's not like once a week you know here's um you know dallas you know um but yeah, so yeah, but one day maybe there'll be some more theme tunes because they were, so what drew me to them was like, you have to do a lot of work and, you know, in a minute, you've got to catch people's attentions, you know, you've got to get a great hook, you've got to get a great melody, you know, a lot of effort goes into that, you know, the sound of it. And I think I was drawn to that, I was drawn to this kind of like, you know, just the effort that went into them, you got something back from it, I don't know. So... Then fast forward. So, how did so? What was the progression from wanting to be a Bobby um, to uh, ending up? And what point did you sort of really? Obviously, you sort of had an affinity for music. But what point did you kind of realise that that could be a potential career opportunity? And then what? What were the sort of steps into uh, music supervision and then sales and then production? Okay, so so the stories. I play music at school. That's my thing. I get known as the guy who does music. You know, that's and uh, it, it's clearly my main interest. You know, I, I love all types of music. You know, I'm playing in all different things. Things at school. Um, I do my GCSE. I do my A level. I go and study a degree in music. Obviously, if I'm going to do stuff further education, it's going to be music. So, so I'm doing all the education. To be honest, I rebelled against the education a bit because, like. I was a bit sort of like, I can play it by ear. Why do I need to do your rules? Which is a bit stupid at the time. But anyway, um, and then you, when you finish your music degree and essentially, you know, like you can, the people, your careers advisors say you can go and work in the Barbican or the Royal Festival Hall. Um, apart from that, you can teach maybe. Um, or apart from that, you know, you can go down the route of trying to be an artist, recording an um, artist or, or maybe an engineer as well. So, I had to really fight against becoming a, a music teacher. Everyone just expected me to be a music teacher. Um, it was back in the day when we didn't have so many um, music tech courses. So engineering was quite a niche thing. Um, you know, being an artist, I don't think I wasn't, you know, I've been in some bands, but I wasn't like <laughs> pop star material. Um, I did once get, oh, it's so annoying. So my teacher at school tried to get me to go and do some work experience at Air Adele because he said, you should do some jingles. You should write jingles. And I had the opportunity of doing it. And I just said, oh, I don't want to do that. It's rubbish. It's like a kid just going, no, I don't want to do that. And like now I'm like, that would have been brilliant. I could have you know, started my career as like a, a writer doing that. I didn't really know about media composition it wasn't an obvious place to go. It wasn't an obvious direction. So essentially, so I do all my um, studying, I do all my qualifications. And then like, I literally was like, okay, where do I go from here? It wasn't obvious how to get a, a break into to the music industry, um, which is really hard to get involved in, you know, but 
so my main thing that happened to me, I was my, my mate's friends had, had a restaurant and um, they wanted someone to play the piano in the background. It was easy money. I could noodle around. So I'm doing this for cash. I'm, I'm a student, you know, just get some money. And this, this elderly couple come in and they say, would you like to play in a, a green room um, in this studio? It's a TV studio that they, they were working in. I didn't even know what a green room was, but I said, yeah. Anyway, long story short, I end up being a runner and also playing the piano for um, Question Time. So it was the weirdest experience. Basically, they used to put on Question Time. There would be David Dimbleby. There would be all these MPs. Um, there would be a green room. They were having a drink. I'd be playing music thinking, this is weird. It's like it's Gordon Brown up there. It's really weird trying to concentrate on playing the piano. And then I did running as well because they were like, you can, you can help out doing that. So essentially... My transition from degree to where I am now, I reckon that that was really important work experience. So I started doing this TV stuff and then this job came up in The Guardian, music researcher. Um, I didn't know what the company was, but it sounded good. And I you know, spent a lot of time on the CV and I had this experience. I'd done some stuff in TV, you know, I think that really helped on the CV. Um, and then I go to this interview in Willesden and thinking, this has got to be the wrong place. This is a really weird place for a record company to be. Company to be. But um, I saw some gold discs in the window. And I thought, OK, this is right. And yeah, it was this world of library music I'd never heard of. Um, and there was this job, music researcher. And, you know, I think it, it, was, it was like my... So the things that really helped was that work experience, the fact that I had a real breadth of of love of music. It wasn't just like one thing. I, I was at school. It was quite unusual back in the day when I was younger to usually you'd be like into metal or you'd be into hip hop, you'd be into this and that. I loved everything. And I really liked classical and world music and everything. So I had this kind of breadth of knowledge and um, I kind of landed in this job, basically looking at people's getting briefs from TV companies and trying to find CDs and tracks that would fit their brief sending them in jiffy bags. It was very strange. So, um, well, I think what's quite interesting there as well is actually you cite the the work experience as the sort of defining factor, not necessarily the sort of GCSEs or the A-levels or maybe even the degree, but actually the thing that set you apart or stood you instead for getting that first job was, was work experience. Yeah, it's a horrible truth, but I think you need the knowledge, you need the skills. I had a depth of knowledge that helped me. Um, and you also need to be able to pair together, you know, TV, music and CDs. And there's a thing that goes on that I could do. But yeah, to get over the line when it comes on, your, you know, these CVs coming up in thousands of them for the person recruiting. It's like, yeah, that's what happens now as well. I think you do an internship or you get some experience somewhere. Yeah, it kind of makes you seem like you've got a little bit extra, I suppose. Yeah. So... You know, you, you touched up briefly there upon the idea that the experience with what you got through the door, but obviously you then you then had to be able to deliver. So you're getting searches um, through, and you've got to find music that works. Putting music to picture or deciding what music works well to picture. Do you think that's something that you can learn, or do you think that's just something that you have or don't have? I think you can learn it. I think you can learn those skills. You can, and I think the learning process can either start at the point where someone says you've got to do this or it could start at the point where you're a child and you're drawn to all the music you hear in films and you're thinking about it in a really subliminal way but you don't realize so you're actually learning through your 
experience because the weird thing about TV music is we're all watching TV, we're watching films. A load of people are thinking about the dialogue and the action scenes. You know, as a kid, always I'd be thinking about the music, even so now, which is quite ridiculous because I can't watch a film without dissecting the, the score. So, yes, the answer is you can learn it, but I think if you've grown up in a way which a lot of people I work with and, you know, there's key people I know have absorbed it in that way, then they've already got a head start. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, sure. Um, and just out of interest, when did you, when you listen to sort of songs rather than sort of TV music, did you pay any attention to the lyrics or were you just focused on the music? Okay, so I'm really weird because I, I find I'm always thinking about the music. Um, I've got friends who can hear a song and she'll know all the lyrics immediately. You can sing it back. Um, hip hop. I love hip hop. Always thinking about the production, the beat, you know? Um, so the answer is always, it's always the music. It's the sound. Yeah, no, I'm, I was always exactly the same. I, the only reason, the only time I started paying attention to lyrics was when I, when I actually started writing them, when I started doing the singer songwriter thing. But up until that point, um, the lyrics, you know, most songs I could, couldn't really tell you even what they were about because it was all—it was just always the sonics or the music, what was going on. Yeah, I mean, there was a change. Obviously, a sixteen-year-old listening to the Smiths, you know, Morrissey talking about all his pains, and that was—you know—you're feeling it yourself. There, there were moments in my life where lyrics became really powerful. Like listening to Van Morrison, it's a little epiphanies where lyrics came to life. But I'd say, generally speaking, I'm always thinking about the the, the music. Um, it's weird there's a thing I always talk about like um, Stock Aitken and, and Waterman um, I used to hate them when I was a kid okay um, I should be so lucky I, I understood that was a really well crafted song so I knew that there was good composition going on there but I remember thinking I really hate this and now where I am now I know why it's because they all their production was the same. They used the same sounds, the same settings. All and there's a sonic thing going on, which is boring and lazy, and it just didn't thrill me. And then it was the other people around there who were doing, "Oh, check out this sound, check out this synth." I oh, actually know what, what about this little thing here. And I was like, "Yeah, that's cool." Yeah. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of interesting, you know, when you look now at what you thought of when you were a kid, and you can see the reasons why. Yep, absolutely. I suppose it'd actually be a good point to time to sort of just clarify what production music is for anyone listening who doesn't know. How would you define production music? So it used to be called library music, and uh, that was changed because it seems uh, it was seen not, as not being cool. like demeaning. Um, but yeah, so okay, so production music is essentially music that's been created specifically for TV and film and all other media. And it's done speculatively. So you create something, you used to release a CD, I'm that old, um, and then it would go on a shelf in an editing suite in Soho. They'd say, quick, we need to get something in the background here. We need some sort of like atmosphere, some mood. And they'd use that tr track and they'd know that they could clear it. It was going to be affordable. It wasn't going to be a problem. And it was this little niche of music which would end up on countless TV programs um, in the background. or was even as a theme. Um, but it was just made by people guessing that oh, this kind of sound seems to be really popular at the moment. We'll, we'll do the CD of this and it would end up on, on TV. So it's, it's kind of a weird 
it's a the library side is there was a library of tracks you could choose from and um yeah i mean it's it's um it's a strange hidden world of music i think yeah and it's a it is a fascinating world and i think a lot of people well you you yourself said that you know coming out of university you didn't even really know what music for media was that you didn't really know that production music or library music really existed um but you mentioned there that how you know it used to be sort of um put out on a cd so and obviously there's some some classic old pieces of um library music so like the um match of the day and grandstands a lot of sort of sporting theme tunes from is it probably even the 70s, was it? Late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, I mean, the 70s was the golden era. Um, so, I mean, there was the recent passing of Alan Hawkshaw, who I was lucky enough to, to get to know and work with. And, um, you know, he was responsible for you know, the, um, the countdown theme and, like, you know, Grange Hill. And, um, yeah, people have now realised that there's this huge wealth of great hits and tunes that everyone knows, but you didn't realise where, where it came from. Mm. So... Um, yeah, I think there's it's slightly it's get, there's more recognition now. There's that whole thing about um, people sampling the, the tracks, which is what I've been involved in as well. Um, you know, there's beat hunters have have been digging through library records in, in secondhand shops for years. Um, so it's it's coming to the surface a bit more now. I think. Yeah, and how how has the landscape changed? Because you mentioned sort of before you get a CD, you sort of put it out there, and obviously now that everything's gone digital. How has the kind of landscape and therefore, I suppose, the the music changed over sort of like the past, what we're talking, we're talking nearly 50 years? Well, yeah, I mean... No, I'm not saying that you were obviously... No, I've not been here <laughs> for 50 years. We've been working for a long time in this business, but not yeah. that long. Um, so, okay, so basically, I mean, the way I see it, so you've got the golden era in the 70s, the recording equipment was amazing, the best session players in London will come in, you know... The, everything sounded brilliant the 80s we drifted into the world of synthesizers sometimes it got a little bit mm, not quite sure late 80s early 90s was n not a great period um sonically you know there was wasn't the production qualities weren't that great um through the cd period you know things really improved and and it's to do with technology and what people could do without going to a huge studio because the budgets were cut um Basically, the digital era essentially means quantity. It just means that everyone can put out live music. You don't have to spend a huge amount of money on pressing a glass master or whatever it is. Or is, it, is it glass master? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, anyway, the, the pressing of CDs and distribution of CDs is a full scale, like um, expensive thing to have to do. Digital means it's open to everyone. You can release as many tracks as you want daily. Um, so the main thing I'd say was it, the competition has grown huge, hugely and like it, it's so many more people making this music. Um, but then weirdly, you know, there's a democracy because there's people in their bedrooms who've got Ableton and they've made a great beat and it works and they can get a, a slice of this action. Whereas before it would be a, a chosen few who knew the, company and would go to studios and record so there's kind of swings and, and, and balances swings and roundabouts for both of them but um i don't know musically i mean musically everything's basically the competition is that basically people now expect us to make music which is exactly the same as a record company and the same quality and the same standards it's 
can be tricky because the amount that goes into a huge pop hit, like the, you know, they'll get mixes by the best mix, mix engineers in the world. They'll get three or four of them. They'll choose it. They'll go back and tweak it. That's one track. So when you're producing on scale, it's, it's quite hard to, to, to have everything sounding at that level. But we do. I mean, the, the standards have got better. You can see that the way through. And um, there's some amazing pieces of music being released. And I have a theory in, in my mind that basically once the sort of CD died and, and music moved online, obviously the, the, the record labels lost their primary source of revenue, which was, you know, selling physical copies. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, goes we go to, uh, it wasn't even streaming, it was sort of like illegal downloads for a long time before streaming. But I, in my mind, because of that sort of major loss of revenue, all of a sudden record companies were then looking at alternative avenues and where once upon a time, you know, sort of, an artist doing sort of production music or even having sort of music synced for a TV ad and stuff was sort of, was unheard of. All of a sudden it's like, oh, hang on a minute, here's a revenue stream that we can actually sort of keep keep going. Did that sort of influence the world of production music? Did you sort of see kind of bigger artists or labels or even producers starting to get involved with it? Yeah, I think so. I think essentially you're absolutely right. Everyone realised this sync market was, there's money there. Um, the people making the TV programs had to pay for it. They couldn't just do it illegally. Um, everyone started knocking the door before they weren't really interested. They were like, hey, can we get involved with what you're doing? You know, it's like, so suddenly, yeah, you've got a quality of artists that they're, they're sorry, their A&Rs maybe would have said, look, don't go down that road. And they're like, actually, do you know what? This is a really good idea. So you've got access to people who were being dissuaded from that. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, it's it's because there's, there was a stigma thing, which people aren't so worried about now. It's like people realise the value of a, a big sink being the radio play that it used to be. So you know, let's be honest, people don't listen to the radio like they used to. But you, if you get a huge advert or a big um, promo or trailer, and people hear your music, that's so okay. So um, Love Island, how many people tune into Love Island? That's more than Radio 1, okay, or some show on Radio 1. You get your track on that, everyone hears it, they shazam it, you've got something. That used to be radio. So this sync world has got value in it for the artist to get some money, but also as exposure, you know, and and that's changed as well because, you know, to get your music heard or above the pie, you know, over the line. Um, Can you think, I think, do you know off... Off the top of your head, any artists that have sort of whose careers have been launched off the back of sort of getting a, a major thing? So I was lucky enough to work with a guy called Matt Hales from a band called Aqualung, um, who were big in the early noughties. And basically, Matt, his first hit came off the back of an advert. It was for a Beatle, I think. Um, and he ended up on top of the pops, and it was great. And then he had a career, he toured with the band, got signed to publishing. Um, and he's now a songwriter working with people like Leanne Havis and all sorts of people. Um, he did an album with me as well because his A&R realised this was a good way to get some extra revenue. So he he had a, a start with, with, with the advertising. Um, so I went to see Sigur Ross in um, Ali Pali and brilliant bands. They've already made a name for themselves. Like they, they, didn't, they didn't need an advert to, to launch their career. But what was really interesting, there's, there's a track which was used on a BBC promo for, for Life on Earth, I think it was. And um, the biggest cheer came for this track. And I was thinking, 
Is that because that's become a bit of a hit? Because everyone was talking about it. People were shazamming it. Who is this? What's this track? And like the, the, the crowd reacted as if to say this was a hit. And I was just, I wasn't sure. With, yeah. Could well have been the TV show. That it, sort of... it, it was the, yeah, the promo, which made that like, oh, that tune. Oh yeah, that's the big one. Come on, let's have that. Um, I don't know. For, for other people, there's probably more artists who've had a launch off, a, off an advert. I don't know. Um, it's a tricky one. Um, that could be a good, uh, good time to sort of um, segue into uh, going under the skin. Under the skin. Uh, there's a project I worked on um, and it was released in 2020. Um, we recorded just at the end of 2019, so we were lucky to get some recording in. Um, and I worked through the early lockdown period. Um, so what was interesting about this project, it was a collaboration between some guys who were electronic producers and they had a, like a career making beats and, and they'd gone into production music. And then I wanted to, to them to collaborate with um, this guy, Andrew Skeet, who's an amazing orchestrator and composer and works with orchestras all the time and, and great with that sound. So it was bringing together these two sides of things. Um, and the guys, the electronic producers, hadn't really worked with an orchestra before. So it was kind of quite exciting. We had the chance to record in Abbey Road, which was like exciting as well. It's a nice place to go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was one of these things where I knew that there was a sound that TV loves and essentially you, strings and orchestra give you scale, give you an epicness, but also give you quality, and a lush sound. I knew that the sampled orchestras are great, but when you record, it sounds so much better. You know, you, we did hybrid in the end. We did use both, but but that live sound was really important. And the the beat the beat makers are they? Is it sort of like are we talking sort of four to the floor sort of housey techno type thing, or are they sort of? breakbeat or so the people this um ollie holmes used to be in bar nine so his background is dubstep um he's moved away from that now because dubstep's not really the the fashionable thing it used to be um so he's someone who's got uh, a definite feel for like electronic music bass but also you know um future bass and like hip-hop and, and mm. groove and stuff so he's not really a house person he's more like a groove person the other okay. guy was digital dog um and he did loads of remixes and he can lend his hand to anything. So it could be a, like a, an EDM track, but also like a hip hop track. So um, it's more the skills of production than crafting yeah. that sonically and making it really jump out. Use their skills there. People can make beat music and it can sound rubbish, but these these guys are amazing. Yeah, I suppose a good question is like what what makes a good production music track? Ah, that's the that's the million dollar question. Yeah. Um, do you know what? I mean, there is, there's no one answer. It's like, I've worked on tracks where I was like, I knew this was like a big tune and they've gone on, it's gone on to be successful. Um, okay. So there's two things, first of all, to say, so a library music, production music track can be successful because you're working to the short form advertising market so you're basically grabbing people's attention you've got something which is um gets your ears and like and makes you go what's that it can be used then in, in, in a theme tune in a promo in a trailer or an advert and that can make a lot of money if you get that right you know um and these tracks in this project i did at abbey road some of them were really big and like um you know orchestra and beats but then at the same time you can make a lot of money 
by being something which just sits in the background but does a certain job, which is this weird world of like not too negative, not too positive. It's sort of like in between. It keeps the picture moving. A lot of production music is to do with um, keeping images moving. Um, so you need motion and movement and kind of like an underlying kind of feeling of of pulse and stuff. So something that works along those lines can make a lot of money, um, but it's maybe not as an obvious sort of hit to when you listen to it because it just sits in the background. I can't, there is, there is no, like, there's no answer to what makes a great library track. Um, but what, about, I mean, what about structure as well? Because obviously, uh, ultimately, the, the people that are working with production music are editors. And this is something, you know, I'm keen to explore on the podcast is it's it's about um, people who work with music and, and the moving image. And in, under that umbrella, I'm including um, editors and directors because they're, they are involved on a day-to-day basis. And I always think editors in many ways are not gatekeepers, but they, they have quite a lot of power in terms of they're the ones who are sort of auditioning the shortlist and quite often, unless they've got a, a hands-on director or producer and making calls about what music um, to use. But obviously they're generally sort of telling some kind of, you know, even if it's sort of like a, a short clip, there's sometimes a bit of a narrative arc and they're using the music to su- support that. So what what structurally goes into making a good library music track? Well, there's... There's some things that, you know, over a period of time, you begin to realise that if you do this, then it's going to really help. And um, and it to, it's to do with what people are trying to use your music in. So, OK, let's say positive music, it builds, it starts off small, it grows. Building is this word that people will talk about. Um, you have a sense of anticipation, something that's about to happen. Um, the music can be all sorts of genres within that but the mood is that you've got something's building building and then you have a drop as they call it now you might have a little breath a pause um you might go straight into something which is big and then you get a full scale climactic back end um and that's like a chorus it, it, it could you know it could be all sorts of genre but that's sort of line that's that, that line upwards um to a big sort of climax it's a wedge. Uh, it's a wedge. So, I mean, that's one thing. That's one thing that helps. But then also, equally, things where there's edit points. So you have to write in a different way when you do production music. You're not making music to listen to. So you have to keep thinking about, rather than through composing, you have like little breaks and edit points. You have pauses between sections. You have, you know, if it's a funky track, you have a little drum fill, um, which kind of just gives you like a place... To, to, to cut the picture to or to kind of do an edit with so those kind of elements of, of um edit points as we call them um are really important um so there are real structural things that will make a difference you know equally you know the front end give them i mean this has been hard for me to do because we had this transition from cd to digital where cds like how long are you going to play the track for before you skip? Now, digital, you can see a waveform and you maybe got a different interaction with that track. So you give someone something at the front end, which is a bit longer before hitting the big the big hit. But then this it's all swings around. So some people would say, no, start with the big, the big statement and then you can come out of it and then you can rebuild later on. So there's, it's not, there's not one thing, but... There's definitely there's structures that work and will help you if you want to be successful. 
Yeah. That's really interesting because that I've always thought that um to start start bold because sometimes an editor might not listen beyond the first um few seconds. But yeah, I mean I'm at the same time I'm also very aware that um you obviously I've sat next to editors and watched them they sort of use the waveform as a guide to sort of drop in and hit listen to different different points and obviously they can skip do that track in a way that they couldn't initially with a cd because you'd sort of get in and if it wasn't right straight away it's interesting i mean i think you know uh i'm always interested more about how people listen to music i mean i know that i can speed listen i can go through and i think this is what editors do um the genre will dictate some to some extent if it's a big hip-hop track you want to hit them with something big at the front and then the groove can take over if it's something which is really delicate and, and building like a trailer track, then you will have that front end, which is like, oh, mystery, antici- anticipation, if I can say it. Um, the genre dictates to a certain degree. And what about um, what about hooks? Do you, you know, in terms of sort of like a lot of the tracks on the, the Universal catalogue, do you notice that a lot of the successful ones have strong hooks? Because you mentioned before that some tracks just sort of sit underneath and, and provide a rhythmical bed. Um, but where, where do sort of hooks feature in terms of importance in your mind? Okay, so the hook is really important if you want to nail that advert or promo. And um, it's that catchy thing that people like. So it could be the hook's part of the groove and the groove just feels right. Um, and the, the weird thing is that, so the, the royalties come quite a lot if, if you have... We call them promos. They're basically just adverts for TV programs. If they, they get heavy revolution. They get played again and again. So every time it gets played, you get paid. Um, so you can make a lot of money from that. And that's where the hooky music really helps. Um, it's different from pop music because people aren't really singing it. They're not expecting it to be on their their their, their headphones or their streaming. I was going to say iPods. That's like, that's so old. It's like, no, it's not <laughs> iPod anymore. On their Sony Walkman. On their Sony Walkman. Um, so, you know, it's not quite the same as, as a pop thing where the hook is really, really important. Um, I'd say mood um, and what the mood is that you're creating is probably more important than the hook. Um, it's an easy word just to say mood, you know, what's, you know but it, it can be really nuanced and um, that, that, that's, in, that's, that's just important as a hook, I think. Well, I suppose that's a defining factor when an editor's auditioning music is that's the, the initial impact is what what's the mood, what's the tone, irrespective of hooks or, or genre. And that would be, I suppose, a critical point in terms of that split second of like, is this right for this scene or not? Yeah, um, yeah. Does it get shortlisted? I mean, so I'll give you an example. There's a track called Golden Swagger. It was the title I came up with. Um, some guys wrote, it's been huge. It's got a huge brass hook at the front. It, it it goes into a hip hop beat, and it just works. It works with so many different content contexts. That is a piece of hook music which is killing it. Um, but then equally, there's another track which is this this kind of like um, tone with some piano on top, doing some sort of like um, modal stuff, uh, a bit like Thomas Newman. Um, that kills it because it just gets used in all the documentaries, all the background stuff. So you can get you know. One's working for one thing, the other one's working for another thing. Um, but, it, you know, if you can write a hook, then go for it. And we, we do like hooks in production music, you know, we're up for it. So, 
can always always get the the, the non-hook version or use the stems to sort of uh, not have it. Oh yeah, to ruin it all. Yeah. <laughs> um, so and so the, another question then is sort of okay. So we've kind of looked at what makes a good uh, production music track, but what what then makes a good production music album? Are you trying to kind of get a get a um, a broad variety of different sort of moods and tones, or are you going to kind of stick to the same tone but explore that in different ways? Okay, this has changed a lot, and it's still under discussion. Um, okay, being the old guy, so I remember the CD. The CD was basically you had to cram as much as possible onto that CD because you're pressing it. So as many tracks as possible. We used to always do these things. We'd break it up into headings, like sections. So it would be like a terrible, terrible title, which I hate, was called Youth Culture. Youth, it's like your uncle talking or something. Um, and then basically... Um, that was representing all the stuff that was going on the charts. So you'd have your hip hop beats, your your indie, some some kind of electronic dance stuff. Um, but it was all under the heading youth culture. And that was back in the CD day. Nowadays, we still do albums and we do like to kind of create something that people will flick through and find useful for more than one track. So there is always like a concept. There's a thing that we try and hang things in and, and you know, and place things in. You know, at the same time, I get people at my my place saying, don't just give us the same kind of genre again and again. Give us some variations. We want things to change up. So I don't know. It's like um, the concept is quite important if you're recording or you're doing something because you're having maybe there's an ensemble that you're going to record. So you will often have an overarching concept and a sound. And ideally within that, you'll have different flavors and now you know it's nice to put an outlier in you know so it's like a, a slightly different track and uh, you know i shouldn't say this like a cash cow or something like a one that's really gonna you know that's sometimes how i think but like um but you know um so the answer is albums but the, the weird thing so it's under discussion because how do people find the music they find it by search it's tracks it's not albums you know are we living in a album time you know do people really care about albums like full stop you know do they i don't think so you know um so it kind of is the same in 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 production music um well interesting i think i don't know in the last couple of days spotify have removed the shuffle button from adele's uh, latest album haven't they because adele has been out gone out and said this album is meant to make a statement and you're meant to tell a story as you go through it um, which obviously has massively changed because, as you say, people sort of cherry-pick music. But it's interesting that you say that as well with, with relation to production music, but at a time when Adele has just sort of come out and gone, no, my music tells a story, so you shouldn't shuffle play it. Well, I mean, I, no, hats off to her because that's, it's, you know, an album used to be a concept, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, you don't shuffle that, do you? you, just, you it's, a, it's a thing. So, you know, um, I think, yeah, there's, I think for for, for headphones music, Definitely albums need to be really cherished and, and people should try and listen to an album and go and actually use your record player if you have one with your vinyl that you bought and like listen to it all the way through. Um, production music, it's this kind of thing which is a nice way of putting together a bunch of tracks. We don't do singles. We, you know, we put, some, put them in some sort of concepts. Um, and then it will be like, yeah, music for, for, for crime drama. It's a huge thing, you know, like so many crime dramas being made. You know, we'll have different shades of like, like eerie, really kind of like dark. Then there'll be something a bit more kind of like or action-y, you know. It's, there's lots of shade and light you can do within that, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, and you mentioned 
obviously this sort of amalgamation between these electronic beat producers and the sort of orchestral. Have you? Is there any other sort of albums where you've kind of spliced interesting genres? Because it's it's funny as a composer, I always think there's there's so much sort of creative reward, but also hopefully, um, you know, it's in terms of trying to sort of break barriers and sort of fuse new genres and, and t- try and bring a bit of irreverence to what you're doing and trying to create something new. Are there any other sort of like albums that you've done where you've sort of spliced interesting genres together? I mean, my favourite experience was back in a time when we were sampling from our own catalogue and um, we would basically dig through the archives and, and get people to use this music and turn it into new stuff. And that was a really nice reinterpretation and, and just using these little fragments and, and doing new stuff with them. Um, we don't do that so much now because it's complicated on the admin side. But um, but yeah, I mean, this is a pretty good question now because I'm like falling through like all the things I've ever done. Like what's the most interesting thing? I mean, it's really hard. I suppose it could be even using interesting instruments. Doesn't necessarily need to be different genres, but where you're kind of taking a kind of random instrument. Or I mean, it was one thing that was quite nice because trailer music. Like, oh, what can I say about trailer music? It's become this thing, and it's like a trope. And we we make the music; it makes money, and it's a, there's a reason for it. You're always trying to find something new to do. So I was lucky enough to work with Enon Zur, oh, who's a really amazing composer, mm. and we did this thing which was like. A kind of virtuoso string quartet um and it was kind of dipping into the world of baroque music um some really elaborate passages on the violin it had a kind of a period thing going on but it wasn't period and it would kind of do a, a trailer thing and that for me was like a really nice opportunity to do trailer music but it's not just another trailer album you know mm-hmm. there's a guy who did this trailer album for a colleague of mine and he used loads of early instruments and like um, sort of like European early instruments. I can't even name what they are, but like there's a sound to them and it just brings something new. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, you're always looking for trying to do something new. I mean, I'm working on a project hopefully next year where I'm going to be working with um, Viola da Gamba, uh, maybe Consort of Viles. Um, and there's a really rich sound to that instrument. Um, which can just bring something extra to a, what would normally be just a, another string album. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I just did a um, I just did a, a short film um, horror short and using a nickel harper. Um, and again, it's just I, I actually I look, I look back on the process and I, what I wish I'd done is I wish I'd brought the nickel harpist, harpist in at the beginning because what I did is I composed and then had them come in. And, and sort of play stuff whereas actually there was so much fun to be had in the exploration of the nickel harper and what it can do and getting all sort of crazy sounds out of it which I think that would have probably informed the score um, in a different way um, but it's just yeah it's just those unique textures and you sort of the things that so you listen to and go oh what's that that's that's a bit weird um, and it sort of piques your interest and your attention I suppose yeah I mean I'm definitely always looking for new things to do I mean a lot of what we do has a purpose to it it's quite functional and that's that's the job i do and that's fine but just to have those um extra elements you know like i really want to work with a, a gospel choir but not doing gospel but basically adding that sound of uh, um people singing to a chorus which lifts everyone up and they can just be doing non-worded vocals 
but you put that in and it's it's a human sound it brings a humanity uh, humanity it brings a it brings like a warmth to the thing lifts your soul it's kind of it triggers something because the, the sound of people singing in, in a gospel choir does something kind of it immediately to your um, emotions so that's like a sound source that i haven't worked with before so i'm always looking for things like that yeah definitely yeah yeah this is it's funny this is a recurring theme and it's something that i sort of believe for many years but Obviously, you talk about technology and everything. Sort of, we we tend to work in the box these days and do everything within the computer. But when you do bring real instruments, or and it's humanizing it, it's actually all those sort of little imperfections that you get from human beings being involved. Like I always think the imperfection of a groove, the imperfection of a beat is is the groove. And um, you know, if you've got a choir of people, they're not all singing perfectly. You're not tuning all of their vocals. There's sort of slight imperfections and same with strings and and, an orchestra, but all of that combines to provide this sort of rich human and an emotion, a level of emotion that you, you just can't get from using sort of samples or certainly, you know, having everything sort of cut to grid um really strictly yeah um, no i i agree i totally agree yeah yeah um i'm interested in sort of um sort of going into you mentioned sort of dark side of the moon and there's a couple of other sort of musical references i sort of go into just sort of have a look in a minute to have a listen to um you know what music shaped you just before we do because i'm conscious that there may be some people listening to this who are getting into composing or are in composing and sort of learning about production music. Um, if you've got advice for people who would like to sort of get into production music, what, what would you think is, what would you, yeah, what would you advise? Okay. If you're going to try and contact someone in, in, a, in a production music library company, um, you need to present a small amount of music um, that you can listen to quickly and easily. So ideally a SoundCloud link, don't send a WeTransfer, which will expire. Um, don't send mp3s which are really heavy and just bog down your inbox that's basics but um um you know find carve a sound make work on something and make something special don't try and think oh i can do all these different types of styles here look i can do jazz and rock and whatever. you know find a thing that you can really do well um you know i'm after people who've got specialist kind of skills and a sound um it's really hard because we do have like an inbox we have um, a demo submission box some companies don't i mean extreme music is like don't contact us we'll find you if we need you um, um we don't do that but um the truth is you have to be patient um you know it will take time for your music to be listened to you won't hear back immediately don't hammer emails constantly because it doesn't really help um having something to say is is good it's like check out this track which was placed in this advert check out what i did here because it's done this rather than just going i'm here i'm here i'm here look at me you know um give me some reason to, to want to engage um it's it's really hard because like there's so many people it's difficult to listen to all the music. Um, it's tough, isn't it? It's which can, which is yeah. You, you can't you can't get the uh, the interest of a production music library without the sync, and then you can't get the sync without. Well, that's not true. Obviously, there are ways of getting syncs of. Um, I mean, you can. There's. I mean, it's weird because some people's careers are made because they knew 
a film director or a film producer. And that's unfortunately, I mean, they had to have the skill. They needed to have the skill. They didn't, they didn't just fall out of the air. They needed to have the talent. But but they, their break came from knowing someone and, and, and making a film. Well, I suppose if nothing else, that highlights the importance of, of relationships. And I think probably something that I subscribe to is it's very easy in the modern world to try and create or nurture relationships online whereas actually there's just there's no there's no substitute for face-to-face in person um notwithstanding global pandemics yeah obviously it's been pretty tricky no no meetings recently still can't have anybody in our building but like um yeah i mean of course the, the relationship is for me i want to get to know the person musically and like and creatively and it's so much easier to work with people when you've met them face to face. You've had that chat. You know, you can talk much more freely. Um, I just to get in the foot in the door. I don't know. I don't know what. It's not like one easy answer. Um, you've got to work at your skills, work at your your sound. You know, to be honest, the truth is, if you make something and the mix sounds really good, you know, mix is really important. You know come come to me if you a, a track will pop out and it'll be like this is really good who is this um there's hundreds of people just doing mediocre stuff the mixes aren't great you know compositionally it's mm, okay you know it's, it excite my ears make me think this sounds professional you know and i suppose the only way to do that is with mixing is just to mix 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 and mix again well the mix thing is is a whole journey it's like you have to you have to train your ears to critical listening and open up your ears to sound and how it works. And then you have to do it to, to learn it. You can't just learn it quickly. Um, and you know, you know, you need to really be, yeah, be on That's something you craft over a period of time. Yeah. Um, you know, so talking about the electronic producers, they basically focused on a style and, they can nail that now because they know how to do synthesis and bass and, and to program a beat because they've done it so many times. Um, and that's why, why, why I want to work with them. Specialist rather than generalist. Getting a taste. I think it would be good to kind of get a, get a taste. You know, you've, men- you've mentioned a couple of albums of you mentioned sort of interest in sort of kids sort of TV, on, well, TV themes when you were growing up. Other, can you sort of trace back your kind of sort of life and sort of pick out seminal moments where either a particular film score or a particular album or something has sort of like had a profound effect and perhaps sort of shaped your, you know, where you are today? I mean, it's a really hard one. I was thinking about this. And um, so so my thing was I was drawn to the sound of the orchestra. So I always loved orchestral music. But equally, there was something about synthesis and that otherworldly sound that really piqued my interest. So um, it's interesting. I've got colleagues and friends and we all went down this journey of like, um, it's, so I'll give you an example, the obvious one. So Chariots of Fire, um, as well as learning to play that piece um, at school, which was quite fun um, in front of everyone, there was like, there's a, a track called Abraham's Theme. And um, it's really simple. It's, there's not much going on, but there's, um, this like little portamento synth sound, which I now know is a CS80 because it's got this little felt 
fourth dimension thing. Um, and it's the thing where you're like, what is that? What is that sound? I don't know where it comes from. Um, Jean-Michel Jarre, you know, synthesis, um, the electronic, um, radiophonic, radiophonic, electronic, um, no, I'll say it again. The radiophonic workshop, we, it gets talked about a lot, but you know, it's that kind of otherworldly sound, which excited me when I was younger. Um, my journey through music has been this kind of different stages of like discovery. And really, I don't know if it's a film score thing. It's more like discovering um, Zucus music and like sitar and like, you know, different scales in world music, discovering um, there was a, when I did A-Level, we got played some Steve Reich. I'd never heard of minimalist music. And I was like, what is this? This is really good. I need to know about this. And like, it was like, that was an epiphany just as a, as a music lesson. Um, you know, there's, yeah, I mean, so I suppose, I don't think there's been key scores, maybe. I don't know. Um, Vangelis has been like a, a, a standout. Um, I mean, everyone loves John Williams. It just goes without saying, but like, um, it's sort of like, you know, we're, 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 that wasn't that an epiphany. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So my journey has been through different stages because I'm pre-internet. It was all about discovering music more organically. So someone would have a record or mate's dad would have a record collection. You'd find this thing. What is this? Um, so yeah, discovering jazz, discovering world music, discovering um, like Pink Floyd and like and all the psychedelic stuff, all different parts of a journey. Then, you know, tuning into pipe radio, listening to rave music, thinking, what's this? This is, and it's all about new, 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 new. So it's like, there's been a lack of new recently, um, which is a real shame. Because, um, I mean, I've lived through periods where, like, dubstep, like, I've never heard of anything like this. What is this music? It's just this weird bass thing going to clubs, people doing half-time dancing. Um, so, yeah, influences. It's not like one thing I can say influenced me. Um, but, you know, even, like, in the classical side, like, listening to Debussy and thinking what are these chords? This isn't norm. This isn't Mozart. He's doing some really weird chords and sounds and it's like beautiful. I know what it is now, but that really caught my ear. And I was like, I wanted to know. And then going and listening to Thomas Tallis and it was like Spermidalium, this amazing piece of vocal music. And it, I, it's just, it's, it's just, there's the sound of it. It's like, it's, it's a cacophony of different vocal parts coming. It's a four-part um, piece. The, kind of those, I mean, I, I, it's really weird. All these things are popping in my mind. Those are kind of points where you're like, what? wow, what is this? You know? Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting as well, because I think it, something that you keep sort of referring back to as well is like it's always something sonically interesting, something that's you've not heard before, something that's maybe unexpected is what sort of piqued your interest and sort of created a level of curiosity, which has sort of led you down perhaps this sort of rabbit hole of sort of exploring that that more and more, which it kind of also ties in with what you were talking about um, with, with sort of the production music and the albums that you're producing is looking for interesting ways, um, interesting new takes. Because obviously... It's very hard to do something which is completely original. There's only so many notes, there's only so many combinations of those notes, but by drawing on lots of different influences and sort of ideas and hopefully sort of moulding that into something unique, that's how you sort of pique the listener's 
attention and um that goes from a you know from consuming music from a commercial perspective but also um you know for people who are sort of professionally doing music and sort of well yeah, i always think of um johan johansson um there was a, a score for Sicario and a score for Arrival. You know, they were both scores where I was like, "Whoa!" He's like, "This is this is very cool. What's what's going on here?" So then you sort of look into it, and it's Johan Johansson, and it's like, "Wow, this sort of opens up a new world." Well, there's, there's a thing there with the the sound thing. It was the the descending um, basses and cellos, basses, yeah, and it became so, like a. Th- I mean, I was like, "What is that?" And it was like, yeah. "Whoa! What what is that?" And, and now it's everywhere. And now everyone's <laughs> doing it. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? No, I mean these things pop up and and yeah they they capture your attention and 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 johan was a brilliant composer i loved him such a shame that he passed away but um yeah um so it's not one thing but i think sound and just the sound experience is is what captures my attention one other last quick question so you mentioned earlier sort of we talked about tv themes and you talked about um you know, we talked about Netflix where maybe themes are sort of coming back a little bit. Are there any particular series that you've watched recently where you, the music's caught your attention? My lockdown experience, there's two programmes that I was loving during lockdown. Tiger King. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, obviously Tiger King was there. Yeah, of course, we all love that. Um, I mean, the musically, I don't think they were like groundbreaking musically. Um, so I'm going to mention the two things. Basically, Grace and Perry's Art Club, um, there's a guy called Alexander Parsons did the music to it. And um, I went and Googled him and he's, he's really interesting. Basically he's this kind of composer where it's very subtle what he does, but you know that he's paying attention to sound. He's got modular synths, he plays the violin. He does these little subtle things. He's got this like far fizzer organ. He does this kind of quirky thing with, um, and it, you know, it's crafted. It's like, it's, it's music with TV, but it's crafted. He's put some time and thought, how do I get this sound right? It's not just gone to Omnisphere and I'm like, oh, that'll do. You know, it's it's more than that. So I really, I mean, that program was a, a brilliant program as well. There was like um, some, um, was it Mortimer and White House? Mortimer and White House have gone fishing. And what was really interesting about that, that was um, a soundtrack of, of music that's been chosen by a music supervisor. It's not being composed. But there was a thread to it and it's really great because someone's made a Spotify playlist. Thank you to the people who make these uh, and found all the cues. And um, it's a really great sort of, so the music's obviously matching the the mood of the the program, which is like fishing. It's relaxed. It's chilled out, but some really great um, old blues, really lovely guitar tones in there. Um, Loads of Richard Hawley, which I should mention is a brilliant um, artist. You should go and check out. Um, And I just, I just remember watching the program and also Shazamming, thinking, "What is this track?" Because it's just a really beautiful, simple guitar tune, maybe electric, but with some slide in it, and it's just blues, and it's just oh, it oozes warmth, and it's got some character to it, you know. Some some tracks from that really caught my attention. And then the other thing was that the recent thing I have to say it, Hans Zimmer, God damn him. God yes. damn Hans Zimmer, he's gone and damn nailed you, it. Zimmer. I mean, like, I get slightly frustrated with the, um, the way that Hans Zimmer just is on everything. And you're like, come on, there's other people in the world. Um, but so I went to see June. I was looking forward to that film for ages. And oh, my God, the soundtrack is, re- I mean, the, the film needs a soundtrack to be good because it's got loads of stuff where there's no dialogue. So, you know, Hans had a great opportunity to do stuff. 
he, you know, sonically the the sound engine, um, the sound production on that was amazing. Um, so I went to see that film. What do I do? I get straight back home. Immediately, I'm looking up um, Spotify to find the soundtrack. Then I have to work out what's going on on the piano, and I realise it's like basically two chords. But he's kind of like because um, <laughs> you know this is how my mind works. I always do this. I'm like, what, what did he do? What to do? And like, and then he's got an approximation of like a Middle Eastern scale that he's using, and then. Obviously, he's, it's much more than two chords because it's all about sonics. It's got this singing, it's got the vocals, he's got, um, and he just does it and he just kills it. And, oh, yeah, I've got a feeling that might be up for Oscar's best score. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really interesting as well because obviously it's, it's, it's blurring the lines between sound design and music, isn't it? It's kind of really bringing those two worlds together. And it actually it adds an intensity to that film. There's such a, you kind of realize when you come out of it, it's like, there's pretty it's, I don't there's barely a moment in the film where there isn't some music or sound going on and it really kind of yeah it, it, it's just you come out of it and you're like oh god it's it's relentless but in a good way yeah and totally totally and you know a great gig to get because the film really lends itself to a composer yeah. doing his stuff mm. uh, and but so integral to the experience of the film um, and so yeah I mean hats off to him. Yeah, hopefully there'll be some other handses around that we can. <laughs> he's not going. He's not going anywhere, is he? He's like, he's you, not, you'd, no. you'd think he'd have retired by now, but he's still oh, God. doing more scores per year than is sort of humanly feasible. Yeah, yeah. and obviously There's no help from a massive team of other people. No, no remote no, control no, is not involved. No, no it's just no. him. It's just him. Yeah, but yeah, that's my that's my pick. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, so we're going to sort of kind of wrap it up now. Um, I like to finish with. Uh, the trivia sort of section, but actually you have just probably the best bit of trivia ever, ever that um, um, going for gold theme tune was done by Hans Zimmer. So what, I'm, what I do with every episode is I go, I'm going to put um, links to every um, sort of bit of music or, or person referenced uh, in the show notes. Um, I had a bit of trivia for you. Um, do you know which uh, film soundtrack stayed at well so not in film soundtrack which a piece of music from a film um stayed at number one in the uk charts for the longest period of time yeah saturday night fever no it's not saturday night fever it's not no oh okay what saturday night fever was uh the biggest selling movie soundtrack of all time right uh with with whitney houston's the bodyguard a close second but i'm talking about songs which featured in film which were number one um and which which track was it? Who was it by? And how long was it a number one for? Oh, that's that's a tough one. Um, do, do you want me to have a stab at it? I've got to. Like... Shall I give you a clue? Yeah, go on. Kevin Costner. Oh, for fuck's sake! Yes, that piece of music. Ah, <laughs> uh, everything I do, I do it for you. Yeah, Brian Adams. Oh, I um... just hate that piece of music so much. <laughs> I can't stand it. I was I was lucky enough to work at Battery Studios. Um, where the piano that he used was was there, and it was like, oh, this is the okay. piano we play. That it's like, I don't give a fuck. Mm. It's shit. It's like, <laughs> sorry. No, it's a- well, after sixteen weeks of hearing it like seven times a day on the radio, it's going to wear pretty thin, isn't it? There's no doubt. Oh my um, god. Do you know what's a close second? No. Wet, wet, wet. Love is all around. Oh, okay. Slightly less irritating as a, as a piece yes. of music. Yeah. But, um, so I do have one piece of extra trivia for you. Oh, but yeah, you don't have it. to use it. I mean, you can, you no, can... I, I will absolutely use it. Okay, I don't know what... what so basically, the Knight Rider theme is a classic yes. theme. Everyone loves it from the 80s. It's really, mm-hmm. like, iconic. 
but you're not you're not going to ruin something for me. You're like like telling me that Santa Claus isn't real. Well, I'm going to ruin it a little bit. But basically, so oh. the guy who wrote Night Rider has been living off that for a long time. But he actually mm. ripped off someone. Um, there's a track called Sphinx by Harry Thuman, and oh. it's a total utter rip. And when you hear it, you're like, oh my god, you basically just ripped him off. I mean, wow. it's a, it's a long told story of people homaging or <laughs> using other people's ideas. But it's mm. just this kind of weird thing when someone pointed out to me, it's like. But this is the Knight Rider theme. I've loved this all my life. Like, you're telling me he just basically ripped this guy. So sorry to oh. kill it, but um, but well, <laughs> I, I yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's killed it. I mean, I'll certainly go and A B the two and see if I can sort of uh, hear the difference. But it will check it out. Just, it, it will. It will. Always, it's a bit like Michael Jackson. Like his music is great, irrespective of what's happened since he died or what's come to light. His music will always live on in my heart. So yeah, I mean um, that's like me. I was a Morrissey fan. I love the Smiths. Listen to Morrissey now. He's like, please shut up. Please, you know, don't <laughs> stop. Just stop talking. Um, yeah. But no, no. Anyway, look. I mean that, that that's my that's my trivia for you. That's great. I love it. Uh, that's brilliant. Um, so just I'm going to finish up with a couple of quick fire questions. Uh, what's your favourite biscuit? <laughs> podcast um uh, favorite biscuit chocolate hobnob chocolate hobnob for, for, for any americans listening that's a cookie um what's a little known fact about andrew standard um little known fact is my earliest memories are from hong kong i was living in hong kong when i was three and a half. Oh wow so my first memories of life uh going to a market and seeing someone chop a chicken's head off <laughs> <laughs> traumatic traumatic childhood yes. witnessing horrific animal abuse very cool um what scares you oh uh well actually recently i'm i'm getting this fucking ridiculous like vertigo but like oh, really? um yeah so i do get vertigo but um i don't i don't watch horror films basically i get scared really easily um, okay. I watched the conjuring, the Enfield um, conjuring. I was like, "This is scaring me. This is not helping me go to bed." Um, yeah. um, no, I'm kind of I'm kind of with you on that. It's like I find it very difficult to put myself through an uncomfortable situation, and watching a horror film, if it's done well, is just that. So, yeah. Um, and finally, um, what piece of advice, if you could go back in time, what piece of advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> oh wow, this is like therapy. That's something. Um, get off your ass and stop being so fucking lazy <laughs> hey getting off your ass and being I think I'd have probably saved myself 15-20 years if I'd have gone back and given myself that that, that advice Whether I, I probably wouldn't have listened though because I was too lazy to listen so but hey okay um, awesome Andrew uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat it's been uh, incredibly interesting and insightful um, and um, yeah good luck with the, the, the sort of uh, the new uh, Viola de Gamba Viola de Gamba, other, I know. It's uh, very possible. Other challenges of 2022. And um, yeah, I'll catch up soon. Thanks. It's been really great talking to you. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, and given that you've listened this far, I feel you might have, then I would be honoured and incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. By subscribing, you'll automatically be notified each time a new episode drops. And by rating the show, you tell the artificial intelligence that will soon be running the world that this podcast is worth listening to. I certainly get a lot of insights and value from these conversations, and I genuinely hope you do too. 
If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email me, podcast at larpmusic.com. Larpmusic.com is my digital abode, and the home of the podcast is larpmusic.com forward slash Sync Music Matters Podcast. And Sync Music Matters Podcast is hyphenated. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. <laughs>